Thank you, Tabby. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles this morning, we're, <clears throat> if you remember, we're in Proverbs chapter 14. And uh, last week we looked at uh, verses 13 through verses 17. And I, you know, I, I tried to uh, emphasize and show you the value of each verse in the book of Proverbs once you get into the chapters, chapter 8 through chapter 30. And I showed you the basic outline that I gave you when we started the book. And um, Proverbs is, is an incredible book. I've told you uh, many times that if there was one book in the Bible that I, I, if I could just have complete, total recall uh, of, it would be the book of, of Proverbs. And it's an incredible book. And I, I, we saw how man last time will we'll use laughter of the world or mirth. Mirth is lightheartedness uh, to try to mask the emptiness that he has uh, inside his heart and inside his life. You know, you look around in, 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 the, in the world and in life and in Christian world and the unsaved world and, you know, you, you look at the issues that man has. And I say man, I mean men and women, and I'm using it in the, in the context of, of, of just the human race. And it's, it's not a complicated concept. I know that we have a tendency to, to complicate things more than they, they really are. But, you know, fundamentally, when God created man back in Genesis, when God created him, he created him complete and fulfilled. The Garden of Eden was a place that, by God's design, that he put a man named Adam and Eve and his wife down there, and it was a perfect, a perfect estate. Everything was absolutely the way it needed to be. In fact, you know, that mindset of that mystical place where everything is beautiful, that mystical paradise, it has, it has driven man all down through the centuries. The great philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, they talked about a utopia, <clears throat> a place that was perfect. And man seemingly in everything he does, the reason why we advance medicine to try to keep people alive is because man actually thinks that he's making the world a better place to live. And he actually believes that someday the world will just turn into that Garden of Eden. It's an amazing thing, the, the, uh, the allure of the South Sea Islands, Tahiti, and those places back in the 1700s and the uh, 1600s when they were discovered. All the explorers, you know, they found, they found paradise. In fact, they equated the, uh, some of the islands to uh, Solomon when he reigned, and there's a whole strain of islands there that is called the Solomon Islands. Man has always tried to get back to that point. And the reason why he does is because fundamentally man is empty on the inside. When God created him, he created him in, with complete and to be fulfilled. But when sin entered into the heart of man in Genesis chapter 3, and it came in by his own free will, I, 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 I have people who call me on the phone with questions all the time, you know, and I have two or three guys who are, are Calvinist in their, in their thinking, in their, th- in their theology. 
And for those of you who don't know what a Calvinist is, God's been good to you. You stay that way. <laughs> the Calvinist is, and it's called by other names. It's called, by, it's called Reformation theology. It's called sometimes Reformed theology. And Calvinism is the teaching, starting with John Calvin, that really formed the Presbyterian church, that God sometime in the distant past looked down and chose the people to go to heaven and the people to go to hell. And you have really no say in it that you were predestined by God way back here someplace to either go to heaven or hell. And if you were one of the lucky ones, you know, and going to heaven, then you're going to heaven. And there's nothing you can do to stop you from getting saved and winding up in heaven because God predestined you. If you're not one of the predestined ones, then Jesus loves me, but sorry about you. You know, you're not one of the chosen few. You ain't going to make it. And there's nothing that you can do to gain salvation because you have been chosen by God to be unpredestinated and go to hell. And that's the, that's the basis of their theology. And I was telling one of them, I said, you know what? <clears throat> the thing I love about the Bible is if you've got a heresy that you believe, you're gonna, you're gonna, the reason why you will not be a deep Bible student, or you'll study spiritual things, but you will not be a deep Bible student because if you're a deep Bible student, you're going to break your neck on what your heresy is someplace in that Bible. And I look at Gen. I told the guy, I said, I, look at, I know what you believe, and I look at Genesis chapter 3. You believe that God chose everybody to go to heaven or hell, right? Yeah, that's basically what you believe. Well, here's the problem. Here's why it's all about free will. Because when you look at Adam and Eve in the garden, and the Calvinists have a tough time with this. In Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, you find the following events. When God created Adam, he chose Adam to be part of the elect, did he not? But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam sinned. So now he is no longer the elect anymore. But then in chapter uh, 3 and 4, God makes him goat skins and, and puts him back in and you find Adam in the line of Christ in, in Luke chapter 3. So Adam was in, chosen in, and chosen out, and then chosen back in again. Ridiculous. You have to be an idiot to be a Calvinist. Because it's all about free will. And when God created man, he created him complete, he created him perfect, and he created him to be fulfilled. He put him in a garden that was absolutely the greatest, best place where he didn't have to work, he didn't have to do anything, he just had to fellowship with God. And it was by man's own free will that he chose to walk away from God. Now, man in his own free will, up through history of the Bible, up to today, he chooses to accept God or he chooses to re reject him. It isn't God coming down and picking somebody to go to heaven and somebody not. It's that God gave everybody the opportunity and the free will, and we choose. An unsaved man looks at salvation. He comes to church. He gets somebody gives him a gospel truck. He reads it. The Holy Spirit of God knocks on the door of his heart. In his free will, he chooses to reject it. And you'll see it with saved people, a saved man or a saved woman, they'll trust Christ as their own personal Savior. They'll choose to get saved, and then God will begin to do something in their life, but then by their free will, they'll choose not to go any farther and not to serve Him. 
So now Genesis 3, we see that man is now incomplete after the fall. He has no relationship or fellowship with God to do anything with God. So in the Old Testament, you're going to find, and we've talked about this many, many times, the kingdom and his relationship with God is all physical. It's built on a physical law. It's built on a physical priesthood. It's built on a physical city, Jerusalem. But that all changed when Christ came at the first coming of Christ. When Christ came and died on the cross, he came really for one fundamental reason. And I know there's a lot of different ramifications to the death on the cross, but putting all that aside, staying with where we're at here, his death and him coming down to die did one thing. It gave you and me the chance to get back what Adam had lost. It gave you and me now a chance to be complete and fulfilled and have fellowship with God. You know, the whole book of Hebrews, somebody asked a question about Hebrews Thursday night in Bible study. And the whole book of Hebrews is a book that really compares the Old Testament with the New Testament. And the writer of Hebrews, when he compares it, he keeps telling us that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. And he goes through it. He talks about that the, the New Testament has, has, better, has a better priesthood. It has, a better, it has a better sacrifice. He says the blood of bulls and goats of the Old Testament could never pay for sin. But Christ was a better sacrifice. He says there's better promises in the New Testament. He says you have an Old Testament and a New Testament. He says the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. You know why? Because nobody in the Old Testament could ever get complete. Now, when Christ came and died on the cross, and he is the New Testament because it's the New Testament of his blood, and a testament doesn't come into effect to a man is dead. So the New Testament is based on Christ's death, and it testifies the fact that you and I can now get back what we lost in Adam. The Bible calls it regeneration. Re. Again. Over again. Second time. And you know, you only find the word regeneration two times in the Bible. If you don't have it marked, you might want to put it in. What is in Titus chapter 3 verse 5 where it says that we're saved by the washing of regeneration by the Word of God. You see, when you got saved, you got regenerated. You had it once, you lost it in Adam's sin, death passed upon all men, but when Christ come down and died, he made a way for you and me to get back what Adam had but lost. The second time you find it is over there in Matthew chapter 19, I think around verse 28, and it talks about the regeneration of the nation of Israel. <clears throat> Israel once had it as a nation, lost it as a nation, but then gets it back in the millennium. Now man, in the New Testament, has the ability to have a working relationship with God through the daily fellowship with him. And now it, it's back to Adam's condition before the fall. Now the Bible says, Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are complete in him. Adam lost the image of God, and now after the Christ dying on the cross, you and I can have that image restored through a spiritual new birth. Now, when, man, when a man rejects Christ and stays unsaved, or 
A saved man who gets saved but refuses to grow in his relationship. Now, here's what you need to understand. He will never really fill that void. Just getting saved does a lot of things for you. It ends where you're going to spend eternity. But it doesn't give you the fulfillment. It only gives you the beginning of the ability to have the fulfillment. That's why you find so many of God's people are so miserable. Christianity today, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, they, they all walk around, you know, with, with their, just with their whole lives are in a mess. And now he'll, he'll never fill that void. And here's the point. You don't want to miss this. And because he has, in both cases, whether he's saved or he's lost, he now absolutely has no understanding. He gets himself deceived, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. He gets himself deceived by the things that he tries to fill that void with when they're not the things of the Word of God. So he tries religion. And religion may be a good thing, but religion will never fill that void. So he tries possessions. He gets a bigger house, a bigger boat. He gets this. He has all the things around him, thinking that there's something missing in his life. And if he just had this, it would make him be happy. If you just went out and bought this, it would make you happy. I've had couples that had severe problems in their marriage relationship, and they were really rocky. And they actually said to me and thought, you know what? We think that if we just had another child, that that would, that would make everything okay. Like, there's a void in our marriage, and we can't fill it up. But that child will now fill it up. No, it will not. It will not. It will not. They try to fill that void with relationships. I've seen young men and young ladies sit in my office and say how, how lonely they were and how they wanted to have somebody in their life. And they would do all kinds of things instead of just understanding the principles of the Bible, letting God work it out in this time and, and get the, what he wants for you. You know, uh, you, know you, uh, you, you, you take matters into your own hands and then you find somebody and your life is a thousand times more miserable about being married than it was when you were single. Those things don't fill the void. They'll get into sin. They'll do everything in the world. They'll drink. They'll smoke. They'll get uh, into drugs and all of the stuff because they want that high. They want to escape. They want to get their mind someplace that is a pleasurable thing for them because they can't stand the void that's in their life. And all those things deceive them. And yet all of us at one time were just like that. We all were empty. Some maybe deeper into it than others. We all were there. And some are still there. But the more you learn the principles of God, the more you better understand and the more exactly you can maintenance your relationship with Christ or your family or your marriage. You know, I'm sure people ask themselves, because I say it all the time, why do you talk so much about principles? I, I told the people in a couple of weeks ago, we were doing the seven 
uh, pillars of marriage. And one of those pillars, I was talking about what principles do for you. And I remember, you know, I remember when, uh, you know, the, the, the development of cameras. I remember when you used to have a big brownie Kodak that you had to pull out like that, was flat, and it, it, it developed itself in 30 seconds if you kept waving it in the wind. Then you'd peel it off, and there'd be the god-awfulest picture you ever saw in your life. And then they come up with those little, those little cardboard box cameras. Remember them? And you just take pictures, and they gave the worst pictures on the planet. And they came out with 35 millimeter, you know, and everybody had to have one of them. And, well, I tell you what, they really did some good, good pictures, and they were great cameras, you know. And then somebody, I'll never forget, somebody came up with the idea of, of an instant focus camera where you had a 35 millimeter and usually you have to look through it and, and you know, and, and crank around the lens around till you get it in focus and you can miss your shot. This one, if you were skilled at it, it, the button that you took the picture, you pushed it halfway and that little lens automatically would go and right into perfect focus. Push it down, took the picture. So if you were really good and practiced with it, you could see something moving, get the picture just like that. And I was amazed at how they did that. How does the camera know what your eye is seeing when it's in... Fo- I, don't, I still don't know to this day. It was an amazing thing. But years later, when I got into the Bible, I thought to myself, you know what? That's what the principles of the Word of God do for every child of God sitting out here this morning. You know what the principles do for you? They'll give you an instant focus in your life. And you don't even have to push any buttons. We look through life most of the time and it's blurry. We don't see clearly. And we need something that brings life, events, people, circumstances, situations into sharp focus. And nothing will do it faster or better than the instant focus of the principles because faster than a camera, it will focus in and show you clearly what you're dealing with. That's why I I give you principles. And these principles in Proverbs, they are the key, as far as I am concerned, in my own humble opinion, they're the key to it all, by God's design. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, that wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. And what he's saying there is that wisdom is built on the principles of the Word of God. And when you get wisdom through the principles, it leads to understanding a clear focus of what you're looking at. You know, my job as a pastor, and again, there's many things that a pastor does, but when you boil it all down, a pastor's job is simply twofold a process for for his people. And I realize that some people want this and some people don't. But taking that out of the equation, my job is so basically simple, it's just two little formats. One, get the principles to you. And I do that by preaching and teaching, keeping them before you, because as you all well know, the price of learning is repetition. So my first part of my process is to get the principles to you. And then my second part of my job is to help you get to the principles, help you get them inside you, spend time with you one-on-one, get into your life, whoever, whatever you need. The principles of, 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 of learning 
and how to put those things together in your life, how to get them inside you, how to use them, so you too can get the wisdom and understanding by the principles of the Word of God, that you in your life at work, with your family, in your marriage, in any relationship you have or anything you have to deal with, you don't have to go through life looking at it blurry. You look at it through instant focus. Now, today, we're going to look at our next set of verses. Yes, that was an introduction. A very fine introduction, if I may say so myself. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 14, verses 18 through 21. And again, we'll see the great principles of life unfold. Now, allow me to read for you. We'll pick it up in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 18. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil bow before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich hath many friends. He that despises his neighbor sinneth, but he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Gene Geisinger, would you stand up and ask God's blessing and pray for us today as we get into the Word of God? Amen. Now, <clears throat> let's look at verse 18 to begin to look at some of these verses. Now, every time I preach on Sunday morning or Thursday night, I expect you to do uh, a number of things. One of the things that I expect you to do <clears throat> is watch how we can take a seemingly nothing passage and walk away with a lot of gold out of it. And I want you to learn how to do that because that's really the key. You know, people think that the key to the Bible is, is really just how much you know about the Bible. And I'm not taking that away. That's important. But I want to tell you something. Really knowing the Bible is nothing more than just knowing what to look for in the Bible. And you can look at a mundane passage like this. I mean, certainly if you were, if you were asked or invited to preach at some worldwide of conference event of preachers, that would not probably be your favorite verse that you'd pick. But yet you're going to see, and I want you to learn how you unearth great principles out of something that looks like it's just an ordinary verse. Because I say it again, the key to learning the Bible is just simply knowing what to look for when you're reading. It says, verse 18, the simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. Now, from last week, we now know that the simple and the prudent will simply be the foolish man and the wise man of the book of Proverbs. The book is written about these two men. We know that now. Now, when you study the Bible, you will find that one of the great ways of studying out your Bible is by what we call association. Looking at words that will always associate with a greater theme of the Bible. Now, this is what I mean when I talk about 
what to look for in the Bible. Once you get familiar with the Bible and you learn some of the key words, whenever you read those key words, by association, you'll pretty much know where you've got to go. And when you look at verse 18, there's two key words here that set this whole thing up for us. And as I said, knowing the Bible is nothing more than knowing what to look for, much more than it is than knowing what you know. Now, the two key words, first of all, would be the word inheritance, and the second one would be the word crown. We know that when it applies to us, these two words will always be about two things. Your inheritance will always be about the millennial reign of Christ. And the crown will always be associated with the judgment seat of Christ. So right out of the chute, right out of the gate, we see that this verse in a practical sense will, will be to us as a, an admonition or a warning, however you want to call it, not to lose sight of these two great doctrines of the Bible. Now, historically, let's look at it for a second here. And I want you to always get the most out of this, so I will take some time, because I know a lot of you want to get your notes in your Bible, and I see you doing it as we speak, and that's good for you. Now, historically, this will be Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And he's getting good advice from his father, Solomon, on getting the father's inheritance and being a good king. But now, Rehoboam fails in both. He never takes the instructions. He's a terrible king. He loses it all. And what really, I think, is an incredible thing that we're going to look at today Jeroboam sets the stage for the future generations of the nation of Israel to go into captivity 500 years later. Think about that. One man, in his disobedience to the instructions of his father, not only did he lose his inheritance and his kingship, but he set the stage for his own people 500 years later to go into captivity. Rehoboam, along with Jeroboam, <clears throat> do the worst thing that ever happened to Israel. They split the kingdom north and south, and they got conquered. You know, <clears throat> many of God's people re- got, reject God's instructions. They really do. And most parents don't know this, <clears throat> And maybe you're sitting here this morning, but right now across this city, many parents are simply setting the stage for their children to be taken captive of the world. They're in church, they're saved, but because they have not obeyed the instructions from the Father, Proverbs to you and me, and they themselves have no spiritual inheritance. As sure as we're sitting here this morning, they are setting the stage just like Rehoboam did for their own children to be taken captive and go into the world. Last week, I gave you that little basic outline of Proverbs. And I showed you half chapter 1 through 7 uh, was the instructions given to Uh, given to uh, a son. And chapter uh, 8 through chapter 30 were uh, basically the Proverbs themselves laid out. And then chapter 31 was the end result. I always make things in the Bible simpler for me in a little outline. And you take the Proverbs, 
talking about what we're talking about is simply this. Proverbs chapter 1 through 7, all the instructions given. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 30, all the instructions implied. And Proverbs chapter 31, the instructions realized. When you take the instructions of God and put them into your life, into your marriage, into your family, there'll be an inheritance. That verse simply says that a fool, a simple one, will never inherit his millennial inheritance, but he'll inherit what folly he has in his life that has brought him. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about that being the shame. There's a verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, which is probably one of the mis- most misunderstood verses in the Bible. People use it all the time to prove you can lose your salvation, which we know you can't. But they can't read. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, it says, talking about us and our relationship with God, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now that verse is taken right there so many times that people take verse 12 and say, see there, if you deny God, he'll deny you. But they don't read the next verse. Verse 12 says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. That's your millennial inheritance. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And just so you would not think that the denying there was you losing your salvation, he penned verse 13. If we believe not, you walk away from God. Yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. So the verse is not talking about God denying you as his child. The verse is simply saying, if you suffer with God, you'll reign with him. If you don't suffer with him, he will deny you your reign, your inheritance. And then he goes on and he says that the crown will only go to a prudent man with knowledge. And of course, in the Bible, we know that there's five crowns listed that you can get at the judgment seat of Christ. We've talked about it many, many times. We also know the Bible says in Revelation 3, 11, that you're warned to let no man take your crown. Second John verse 8 says that we need to look to receive a full reward. And in this life, a Christian will be crowned with knowledge. In the next life, you'll get the actual crowns for the knowledge that you have right now. That is just that simple. You either will or you won't. Now, along with that, there's a couple of other things here I want to look at. I want to talk for just a moment <clears throat> the idea of a parent passing on to their children an inheritance of folly. You know, in a physical sense, when a, a parent dies or parent dies, mom and dad, they will leave their estate to their kids, unless there's some big fight going on. But most parents do that, good parents, because they want their kids to be better off than they were. And I know that 90% of you are young, you don't even think about that, old age is as far away from you as looking up at me, and you just, you know, you're just as, you're just as, you don't ever think about these things. But you know, it always amazed me how that parents will always be drawn to the physical much more than they will the spiritual. They will leave their kids set up physically. They will leave them in good shape, but they'll leave them in a disaster and inherent spiritually. And they'll just leave those kids the same undisciplined folly and lifestyle of no knowledge that they had. Parents want to make their kids better, but it's more than just making your kids better physically. 
What inheritance, what inheritance, what inheritance are parents today looking to leave as a legacy for their children? Your spiritual 401k to your children. And the idea here is that people who are foolish and unstructured and have no knowledge, only folly, will leave that as a spiritual inheritance uh, to their kids. Now, that'll be a saved person or a lost person. Somebody said one time, when there's no cross in the family, there'll be no crowns in the family. When there is no cross that the family bears for the cause of Christ, then there'll be no crown for the family at the judgment seat of Christ. And I've seen 40 plus years disastrous inheritance of lost crowns in so many lives because of folly and foolishness. Let me tell you something, I think. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, I think you have probably the greatest single story in the Bible that really reveals how God, and I wish I had time to go through the chapter today, but it's the greatest chapter. We've been through it before, but it's the greatest single chapter in the Bible that I know of that shows exactly the relationship that you should have between God, your pastor, and yourself. And it's a picture of young Samuel being turned over to the priest Eli to work in the temple because Samuel's mother wanted the very best for her boy. So she took him to the very best of Israel, the high priest Eli, and she turned him over to him and she says, make him for God everything that he wants to be. And in that passage, you see how young Samuel didn't know anything about the Lord. He didn't know nothing about it. He just started it, just like so many of you when you first started coming to church here. You know, we think the job of a pastor is, is how well the pastor knows his Bible. And I want to tell you, a pastor should know his Bible, but that's, that's not the greatest that's not what makes a pastor. We think a man is a good pastor because of how good he teaches or preaches. And I believe he ought to be a good teacher and a good preacher, but that's not what makes a good pastor. We as young men and young ladies today, you as young men and young ladies today, you're so far removed from some of these things in the Bible that young men going out into the ministry today and want to start churches and want to do this, they know Bible and maybe they're good preachers, but that's not what a pastor greatest qualification has to be. The greatest qualification and the job of a pastor, which in my own personal feelings is what excludes so many people out of the ministry, even the ones that are in it today, is that the pastor has to have the ability to see in you today what you do not see in yourself yet. He has to have the ability to see what God is doing in you long before you see it. That was Samuel. Samuel goes three times to Eli. I think God's called me. And he just says, you know what, son? Just go back to sleep. It's okay. 
But it was the third time when young Samuel came that the Bible says that now that now Samuel perceived that God was in it. Most pastors, they want to have a long-distance pastor relationship. They want to keep their people at arm's length. They want to always present themselves above the people so they don't have to have to become one with the people. And I want to be very honest with you. You will never see in you what God sees in you from a long distance. You have to get into that person's life. You have to get into that person's world. And then when a pastor sees it, his next job is to get that young man or that young lady or that mom or dad or that couple everything that they need to make sure that they get a full inheritance and a crown that comes from the right knowledge because wisdom is the principal thing and you get them the principles of the Word of God. You get the principles to them and then you help get them to the principles. In ministry, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, and I'll be very honest, I do not understand it completely. And I, I need to say this, so just please bear with me. You know, many of you came from good Christian homes. Your mom and dad made sure you got the spiritual inheritance, and that's why you're in church today. They, they, They loved you. They taught you right from wrong. And you're here today because you got that good inheritance, and praise the Lord for that. But you know, along with that, honestly, some of you others should not really be here today doing what you're doing the way you are. I don't mean this in a disrespectful way. I really don't. So please don't take it that way. But your parents lived a life of folly and a continual life of being dysfunctional. Some of your parents were lost and cared nothing about God. Some of them were saved and cared nothing about God. And they never could or would not ever do what God had called them to do. And by all human reasoning, their complete lack of any spiritual inheritance and only the inheritance of folly should have been passed on to you. And listen to me. And the thing that amazes me is today you defy the odds. You really, by the odds of human nature, should not be in church doing what you're doing for God. You, are, you stand in stark contrast to everything that is an absolute principle in the Word of God. And you simply, with what you came from, what you have to go through, what you've experienced in life, what you did not get, you should not be here today plugged into that book doing what God wants you to do. You are an absolute miracle of God. You should be just like them, absolutely worthless, but yet you're not. And I can see that in you. Now, why? Why is why you? 
I've seen them where sometimes they had three or four kids in the family and all three of, of the four kids were absolutely worthless, never went anywhere, never did anything. You all were raised the same way. You all ate the same food. You all had the same parents. Three of them will do nothing and one of you will turn into a piece of gold. Why is that? That thing haunts me. I look at that. I have seen it. And sometimes in a Christian family or a lost family, the kids, all of them, are just as dysfunctional as the parents and nobody ever does anything for God. Why is it that some of you are here today and you defy the odds that were stacked against you that were astronomical for you to be here where you're at today? Why are you the exception to that absolute rule? Some of you were raised Catholic. And you were caught in a, in, a, in a vacuum of religion. And you find so many of them just go on with religion and they never break free. And they go on all of their life and then they raise their kids and it's an endless cycle. Why did God come down and pull you out? It's amazing to me. Some of you were Mormon. Some of you were Jehovah Witness. Some of you were charismatics. You had no Bible. It was all emotion. It was all feeling. And if there's anything that's hard to break out of is a family and a life where everybody's jibber-jabbing and running around and praising the Lord over nothing. But God, God brought you out. Some of you were in churches and you had no Bible. And you went to churches where they sang songs and they gave sermons, but there was no absolute truth in your life. And if you look back in that church, there's still 5,000 people in it, but you're not there anymore. Why you? Why you? Why are you so special? Charles and Laura gave their testimony of the New Year's Eve, so it's no great news of the drugs they were in, prison they were in, and their life was absolutely a shambles, and it was absolutely in an end, and they should spend the rest of their life locked up someplace or in the drugs, and my friend God reached down and did a miracle. Why was that? Why was that? Your family out of the most screwed up, dysfunctional, broken, busted family on the planet. Your oldest boy is taking those boys and teaching them and teaching them how to give devotion. That is against the law. (laughs) I don't get it. Why did God pick you to give you the right inheritance or the ability to have the right inheritance? Some of you are struggling in your own relationship with God. 
Some of you are struggling with your own relationship in your marriage or with your kids. And you, you, you think it's some accident that you're here this morning. You think it just happened this way. You, you just, somebody invited you so you showed up or you've come a couple of times in the past. I want to tell you something. God has something he wants for you. He doesn't want you to have an inheritance of folly. He wants to give you the best. Hey, if God, listen to me. If God cared enough about you to pull you out of that and pick you, why will you not pick him? Why did God do that? Why did God pick you to give you the right inheritance and leave the other guy? I'll tell you why. And you better listen to me. God saw something special in you. And you do not yet see it yourself. All down through the Bible, when God reached a man, he pulled Abraham out. The earth was populated with millions and billions of people. And yet God, in all of that, saw one man and called him out. Genesis 6, there must have been 6 billion people on the planet. But God looked down and saw Noah. Moses. Is there anybody starting out goofier than Moses? God picked him. David. Why? When they came to, the, to Jesse, his father, to look for a king, they called in all the other boys. They didn't even consider David. And one by one, they walked through God, and God said, Nope, 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 nope. That's the one I want. Now, why did God look down in your family, in your history, in your friends, in your school, in your yearbook? Just go through it. Look at the endless pictures. And why God say, nope, 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 nope. That one right there is the one I want. You're something special. Some of you came through religion. Some of you came from, from without a Bible. Some of you came from the most dysfunctional situation you could ever imagine. God picked Paul. He was the enemy of God. He had killed I don't know how many Christians. You ain't going to tell me there wasn't a 10,000 other guys who loved God more than Paul, who was faithful when Paul didn't even care about God. Why did he pick him? Same reason he picked you. God saw something special. He saw something special in you that he saw deep down in you that he didn't see in somebody else. And you don't even understand that today. You know, maybe you're not supposed to understand it. Obviously, it would be a lot easier for you if you did. But maybe he doesn't want to make it easier for you. But you know why you don't have to stay inside you and see it just yet? Because he gave you a pastor who sees it when you don't. 
And that's my job. My job is not to look at your problems or your dysfunctionality or your idiocy or your stupid things. You want to talk about stupid things? Just talk to me about it. I could fill up your day with it. That's enough. It's enough. He saw something in you. He saw something in you. And glory to God, in spite of your religion, in spite of your goofy parents, in spite of your, 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 your brothers and your sisters, he reached down and got you out because he's got an inheritance for you. Do you see that today? He did not leave you behind. He came back for you. Brother, I'm telling you, when I see that, I'm in. When I see that in a man or a woman's life comes into this church, I mean, I'm in for everybody, and I'm here for everybody. No one better than the other, but I'm telling you, I got the ability that God gave me that I see inside of you what you do not see in yourself yet. And old Eli, he saw what God was doing in Samuel's life, and he put together a plan to get him everything he needed. And Samuel turned out to be one of the best prophets that Israel ever had. And when I see it in you, whether you like it or not, whether you stick around or not, whether you do what's right or not, if you do, I'll get you everything you need so you too can be the best for God. Because that's why he pulls you out. Oh, you look in your middle of your problems and you see this and you see that and you get overwhelmed. I get it. You get overwhelmed with it so much and you focus so much on your issues, so much on your problems. And the longer you go, the more complicated it comes and the more complex it comes. And that's all you can see. You can't pull that curtain back and see that deep down inside, God has something for you. And when you can't see it, bless God, I can. He showed me what you're really like. You know, we are unlike most churches in a couple of ways. But one of the ways that we are not like most churches, we don't have a lot of goofy people here. And a lot of that is by accident. Because, you know, we didn't even put a shine up. When you put a shine out front, you know, the first thing everybody who's left this church down here that's mad is looking for another church to come to so they can get mad there. I always told you, we don't need a shine because you need to be the shine. When people see your life, see your fulfillment, see your completeness, see your happiness, see you got it together, they're going to say, where, where, well, how did that happen? You just lead them right back the yellow brick road to the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> My job is to see it in you the way God sees you. See in you what you yet see in yourself. I don't look at your family history. I don't even look at your own history. But be able to see beyond that. See those, th- those key areas that shine like nuggets of gold in the moonlight. My job is to take you, to make you, to develop you, to, to make you better, to develop that inheritance that leads to a crown of righteousness which fadeth not away. So you as a parent in time, as you grow older and get married, that you can carry on to that third generation 
and instill that inheritance and leave it to your children and their children's children. Hey, making the world a better place is not complicated. It simply starts with you and me being better Christians. And then you and your wife becoming a better marriage. And then your family becoming a better Christian family because we now know that God reaches the world through families. Better because you have an inheritance to look forward to and a crown to be passed on. Your spiritual 401k. And the verse says, the simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. Look at verse 19 for a moment. The evil bow before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. Now, you want to get your notes in here. I want to help you. No use paying for the same ground twice, so we're coming through here. Now, doctrinally, this will be a reference to the Jews at the second coming of Christ uh, and, uh, and on into the millennium. Right now, the Jews are on the bottom and the Gentiles are on the top. Uh, that's the devil's plan. But you know from Christ's first coming and places like in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 10, that all changes to the second coming of Christ. This is called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew chapter 10. And when the Lord comes back, it all changes. That's why he says in Matthew 5, 5, that the meek shall inherit the earth. That's the nation of Israel. They will when Christ comes back. That's he says, blessed is the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's true, second coming. That's why he says in Matthew 19, 30, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's true. Israel right now is last, but when Christ comes back, she will be first. That's why Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It all gets turned around. So you need to understand that there's a coming a day from a doctrinal standpoint that the evil nations will bow before the good, the nation of Israel. But for you and for me, in a practical way, it simply means that at the end of your life and my life of folly, we'll lose all that we thought was important and we'll stand before God with all the righteous saints, and we'll lose it all. And the evil will bow before the good. An unsaved man will bow before all the righteous at the great white throne judgment, and he'll lose it all. A saved man will bow before the, the saved people at the judgment seat of Christ, and he'll lose it all. One goes to hell, one goes to heaven, but they both lose everything God had for them. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, we get the idea that, that your life is your own and you're going to do your own thing. You know, it's not a matter of whether you will or you won't bow your knee to Jesus Christ, whether you're saved or lost. It's just a matter of when you will. Look at the last part of verse 19. And the wicked at the gates of the righteous. Now get this note in your Bible doctrinally. Two things here. The gate of Jerusalem, uh, the gate here in an in a Old Testament saint uh, set, setting uh, would be the, uh, the gate of Jerusalem in the millennium. And you'll want, uh, you'll want Zechariah chapter 14 and numerous places in the Bible that, that that's going to be where all the Gentiles have to come in. In a practicable application, the gate there will be Revelation 21-22. It'll be the gates of the New Jerusalem, and that'll be the church-aid Christian. For an unsaved man or for a worldly Christian, 
child of God, it's not, as I said, not a question of will you bow your knee, only when. You'll either take him now under a God of love or you'll take him that day under a God of judgment, one way or the other. Look at verse 20. The poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich man hath many friends. Now again, doctrinally, so you get your note in here now, this is Israel in our present time period. The word neighbor here is an old English term. We use it differently than they used it back there. Uh, we think of a neighbor as the person who lives across the street, and, and that's true in a practical sense. But in a Bible sense, a neighbor will be somebody that can live miles away from you, hundreds of miles, but you're friendly with them like they were your next-door neighbor. And doctrinally, the neighbors here that hates the poor, the poor will be the nation of Israel, and the neighbors here would represent all of the neighboring countries around the nation of Israel today. Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iran, uh, Afghanistan, uh, Israel is completely surrounded with neighboring nations that stand for one thing. They hate her and they want to destroy her. That's the doctrinal application. You know, funny thing in America, we have six or seven terrorist attacks. And I mean, it's terrible when people get killed. I'm not suggesting that it isn't. But we have six or seven terrorist attacks in 20 years and think that it's, it's absolutely the end of the world. People in America, uh, you know, they, they're afraid of anything. They, they don't go anywhere. And yet over in Israel, they live that way every day of their lives. Since 1948, there hadn't been a day gone by that a terrorist attack hadn't killed somebody. They live their life under that threat every day of their life, and they function and just go on, where America has a couple of them and falls apart. Now, in a practical side, it's also true, people look down at poor people. You know, when you get a new neighbor, we all do it. When you get a new neighbor that moves in next door across the street, first thing we do is check them out. See if we get a good one or a bad one. I mean, nobody, nobody wants a neighbor that parks four or five old cars in their yard, <laughs> let the trash build up, has barking dogs all night. I've had neighbors in the back of me that had dogs out. That dog cried all night long and barked all night long, and I knew that there was something wrong with it. I went up there. That dog hadn't had any food or water for three days. So I go up night when it's dark and do a little recon and take food and water. I mean, that dog and me got to be the best friends in the world. I mean, let the people move out and leave the dog. But nobody wants barking dogs all night when you're trying to sleep. Kids running through the neighborhood. Lawns not mowed. My next-door neighbor doesn't like me. Well, I think he likes me now, but for a long time he didn't like me because I didn't take care of my lawn like he takes care of his. Well, you know what? He has Kemlon out there, you know, five times a day, spraying the thing to kill the dandelions. And you can just lawn as green as can be. Mine's got raw dirt with a dog run up and down. It's got dandelions all over the place. You know what? If they ever, you ever can dry dandelions and smoke it like dope, I'm going to be a millionaire. <laughs> We, we look at, we want people to be like us. And when they don't look like we ought to think they ought to look, then we don't like them so much. It's just human nature. We have our standards and we don't think they match up. And, you know, and this is true of so many churches. There's a lot of churches you go to, the uppity uppity, they look down. There's a section for all the poor people and they look down at that. Pastor would never spend any time. Let me tell you what, if you're a poor person in most big churches and you have a problem, you'll never hear from anybody. If you're a big giver and somebody that's got a lot of money, man, they'll be on your doorstep. But we're all like that. My neighborhood is not the greatest in the world. 
I live in the south end of Raytown, right behind Raytown South. We've been there for many, many, many years. We ain't going anywhere. I mean, the duplexes across, right across the street from mine. I mean, they're, 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 you don't always get nice people in there. And down the north end on the other side, 83rd, why, there's many nights we come home and the SWAT teams are down there. They got the road blocked off. Guys walking. I was sitting down there at the thing watching the whole thing in binoculars. Guy walking down, you know, putting his clip in his M16, and they're all folding up there because they were going to get somebody out down there. SWAT teams walking by, and I'm sitting there, you know, saying, good luck. Be careful now. Be careful, you know. <laughs> Then after a while, I thought, this is a great opportunity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be spiritual. And I say, go with God, my son. And you know, you go down the road, you know. <laughs> but hey, I've met some really, really, really neat people in my neighborhood. But at first glance, you wouldn't think they were, you know, they were bad. I mean, they got their problems. But, you know, I would tell you all the time, be smarter than the problems. We had people over there across the street oh, a number of years ago. I used to, my, 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 lab before these labs. I had a big brown lab named Buddy. He must have went about 140, 50 pounds. He was a monster. Labs are usually the most friendliest dogs on the planet. He hated everybody but me. <laughs> Steve Brackeen's dad one time came to my house, came in through the garage, and reached over to pet him. He jumped up over the gate, grabbed him by the shirt, and pulled him right over the gate. I mean, he did not like any, anybody was around me or close to me. Oh, he, and when I'd walk him, oh, he, PC people, he'd just growl. And I remember the people across the street had a bunch of teenager boys, and they were all dope people. I mean, I, you, I'd walk out there at night, and there'd be a purple haze over that side of the street, you know. I'd walk out there, and I'd... I mean, I knew one time, it was bad. One time, Barb went out to take the little dog out and came in. She was skipping over through the front. <laughs> But I, I, I learned you just gotta you gotta you gotta get on their level. So I'm walking to Buddy one night and they're they're over there. I mean and they're I mean I mean it's it's this you can smell it everywhere. And I'm telling you, I'm I'm on my side of the street, they're on that side, and I mean Buddy there's like nine or ten and Buddy is just he just on his back legs slobbering and growling and t- just like he wants to get at them. And they're nice kids. And the one kid says, hey, he says, how are you, Mr. Alexander? And I said, I'm pretty good. How are you? He says, fine. He says, he says, he says, that's a big dog you got there. And I said, yeah. He says, he ain't very friendly, is he? And I said, well, I said, he said, what's he all upset about? And I said, my opportunity. I said, well, he's a police dog. <laughs> and he's been trained to sniff out drugs. You guys got any drugs over there? I mean, (laughs) they were gone. Every time I saw them, they never were out smoking. I don't know where they smoked, but they wasn't out in the front of the yard. I never smelled it again. And I'll tell you what, every time they see me, hello, Mr. Alexander. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. How's that dog? Oh, he's fine. He's He's watching you guys over there. He likes you guys a lot. You know, every Memorial Day, I'll take four or five of them, big plates of ribs. We joke. I'll say, yeah, I know these are white man ribs, but they're really good. And they'll laugh and they'll say, I bet you can't jump either, can you? And I say, no, I can't. (laughs) Hey, 
One thing we all need to remember, Jesus loved the poor people. We want to keep that in mind. Look at the last part of verse 20. And this is the classic. But the rich hath many friends. You'll never really know how many friends you got till you come into a lot of money. <laughs> then you'll be everybody's friend till your money runs out. You'll have more family, more aunts, more uncles than you ever imagined. You'll get on the phone and you'll say, well, I appreciate that, but I, I got all the friends I can afford right now. Thank you very much. But you know, in truth, from a Bible perspective, and we get so out of whack sometimes. A rich man is just, in most cases, a poor man with money. His money just temporarily hides how poor he really is, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Somebody said one time, if you don't have a lot of money, nobody knows who you really are. And if you do have a lot of money, then you lose track of who you really are. A lot of truth in that. Look at verse 21 goes along with verse 20. He that despises his neighbor sinneth, but he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Again, the, the doctrinal references to Israel. God said in Genesis 12, 3, talking to Abraham, he says, you know, when it comes to the nation of Israel, I'll bless those that bless thee and I'll curse those that curse thee. There's blessings for any nation. History proves that out. Any church, history proves that out. And any Christian who takes care of the Jew who understands Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, who understands what the Bible says when it says that uh, they are, they are, uh, I, I am an enemy to them, but they're never to be an enemy. I, I'm not to be, they're, they're, they look at me as an enemy, but I'm never to look at them as my enemy. But in a practical way, there'll be some blessings in taking care of the poor. Now, I, I'm going to say this, and I believe it's true. Maybe you don't agree with it, but that's okay. I, I think we have a very blessed church here, almost to the point where it's, you're spoiled sometimes. And I know it primarily has to do with the book that we hold up. I understand that. And the reverence that we have for God's Word. And I know that down through history, the nations and churches and Christians have been blessed and God uses them because of the Word of God. I get that. There's those natural blessings that come. There's nothing you have to do except just reverence the Word that God gave you. The rest will take care of itself. But I'll tell you something else that brings blessings of God. It's helping the poor. Many of them don't want to hand out. They just want to hand up to get back on track. We got a little family here, Maurice, that we met down at Restart. They're not here today because obviously so I, they don't, they're not in the Internet, so I, I, I wouldn't have said this if they were here. But, but uh, when they first came here, you know, uh, I, we loved them. We invited them to New Year's Eve. They came. They n never asked for a thing. And about uh, the second week, he came to me, and he said, can I talk to you a moment, Pastor? And I said, sure, yeah. Now, here's a family that you all know didn't have anything. We supplied all of their, we supplied all of their furniture. They lived at Restart. They finally got a house. I found out that he can't work because he had a serious heart attack, and he's on disability, and that's basically nothing. He's got two of the best kids. His wife deserted him. He's got two of the best kids you could ever want. There's a, there's a miracle that the odds are stacked against somebody. So he comes over to me and he says this. He says, I have my car where uh, I have to, he's got a, some deal out in, out in Lee Summit where he has to pay the payment every month 
uh, or it's got some kind of deal on his car that they go on a computer and shut it off and they can't run it until he pays the deal. I don't know. And here's what he asked. He says, you know what, Pastor? He says, uh, I had to make a choice between uh, living in the cold or getting a place for my kids, and I didn't make my car payment. So I'm automatically, and I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help him get what he really needs. But I'm thinking he's going to say, could you help me out? And he says, he says uh, so I don't have a car. He says, so I was wondering. He says, me and my family, we go down to a couple of different places and we pick up food for people who have less than we do. And he says, and they depend on us. And he says, if I don't have a car, I can't get the food. Do you think there's anybody in your church that would drive down and pick up the food and take it to those people who don't have anything for me? Now, here's a guy who don't have anything at all. And he's worried about the poor. And there's some of God's people who have everything and don't think about anybody else but themselves. And I said to him, I said, Morris, I said, Maurice, I said, you know what? We could do that. Well, wouldn't it be a lot easier if the church just helped you get your car back and then you could go on from there? He broke down and cried. He never asked for a thing. All the time that they've been here, they have never asked for anything other than to help do the ministry. You folks that are discipling them boys and him, those kids are absolutely loving it. You're giving those kids an inheritance. But you know what? Most people done at restart, we just look at it. And, and I know, and I, you know, and, I, and I, I, I get it. You know, I know. I mean, I, 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 I get it. You know, uh, you know, somebody will say, well, you know what? I don't go down to restart or I don't go to 18th and Cherry because, and I've heard people say it. You know, well, I just don't, we, I just don't see any real results down there, you know, and I just don't see, those people aren't very appreciative down there. Well, did you ever stop and think that the fruit, the results might be you and not them? God using that to show you what he's given you, that you don't get to the place that you think you're better than everybody else? There ain't a time I drive home from that place that I don't thank God for, ever, for my family, for my kids, for everything that I've got, for you, for all of you, for this church, how God has blessed us. But, you know, it's easy to get arrogant. I think a lot of God's people think that they deserve all the blessings of God that they have. We don't deserve anything. We lose our perspective. You know, that's what the disciples did. Did you ever notice that? I mean, the disciples, they, Jesus was the great, he, he loved the poor. He was always with the poor. That's where he always hung out. I mean, I'm a, it, it's one of the greatest things you'll ever see in your Bible. But the disciples, they, you know, they, they were with him for three years. And I can only imagine what it would be like to hang out with the Lord and be one of the chosen 12. I mean, you know, there's, that, that will get to you after a while as far as thinking you're something special. I, I, I know how it is in the ministry. I know how it is today. You know, I'm sure that there were people that came up to one of the disciples and they said, um, um, I hear that, uh, that, that John is, uh, uh, is, uh, is the guy to go to to, to ask the Lord uh, something. And that apostle would say, well, that's not exactly true. I've been with the Lord longer than him. What do you need? Yes, I, I can handle that for you because... You don't, don't tell anybody, but I'm really his right-hand man. Just come to me with what you need. I mean, can't you see it? 
I mean, every time they get into trouble, which because of the fact that they lose their perspective over the people that Christ is trying to minister to. I mean, you had a woman in Matthew chapter 15, and she had a legitimate burden. Her, her daughter was vexed with the devil, and it was tearing her apart. What more? What, what is more heart-wrenching than to see a mom with a little girl or a little boy who is suffering, and the mom wants relief, and she knows the, a man can get it, but she's got to go through a 12-point program of apostles to get to the Lord Jesus. And when she gets there, you know, she's heartbroken. And the Lord says he's going to put her through a little test and he doesn't give her everything she wants. So the next thing she does, she goes to the apostles. Instead of the apostles, the disciples saying, Lord, she's got a legitimate need. Now, I know you're maybe trying to teach her something and that's all good, but at least let us know how we want us to deal. No, no, not those guys. They came to the Lord and said, Lord, would you send her away? She's crying after us. We're trying to go out here and, 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 and do the work of the ministry, and she's walking behind us, wailing, begging us. It's looking bad. Can't you just get rid of her, send her away? One time he fed 5,000 people, and they were so engrossed in the Word of God that they wanted to hear more, but it became late in the day. They had nothing to eat, and they were all hungry. Disciples have been out shaking hands, signing autograph cards and doing everything, you know, signing Bibles. Yes, I'm the number two man. <laughs> Peter, yeah, here I am. You know, go keys to the kingdom right here in my pocket. <laughs> when we come down to the real nitty-gritty ministry of feeding them because they were hungry, they just looked at the Lord and said, we don't have anything. Send them away. We got what we wanted out of them. Send them on their way. One time a bunch of little children came to see the Lord Jesus. The disciples rebuked them because they had just got their new freshly clean, starched white robes. The essence of their holiness. And the little grubby, dirty hands of the kids were leaving fingerprints all over the white robes. They began to rebuke him in Matthew 19. And Jesus said, what in the world are you doing? Let them kids come to me. You know what, guys? I'm going to tell you something. Except you come to me like a little child, you have no part on me. Dump the robes and get back to what you need to be doing. But you know what they were doing? Mark 9, 34. That's what most of God's people do. They're sitting around in a Starbucks someplace, sitting around in a, having a little coffee time, and they're arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. One time the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus with a bunch of sinners who needed help and all this down there, and they asked the disciples, why does he always hang out with the sinners? Jesus heard him over, heard him, and looked up, and he said, you know why, pal? Because the whole doesn't need a physician. It's a difference, folks, between a hands-on ministry and a hands-off ministry. 2 Kings chapter 4, Elijah sent his servants to do what God had called him to do, and it didn't work. A lot of times, pastors and churches will send other people to do what they ought to be doing. Every year around Thanksgiving, when I go to the Hy-Vee to get groceries, there's a big church in Lee Summit, and, and they always have a big food drive truck. And uh, 
they catch you coming in and ask you if you'll give a $5 donation and the food's going to, uh, to, uh, uh, to harvesters, you know, to feed the poor and all that. And, 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 and all that, and I'm, I'm, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, harvesters is a great organization and they do a lot of good. I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not bemoaning the fact that somebody's doing food for it. I, I, I'm not, I'm really not. But you know what? Huge churches, they do that every year. But never one time would the pastor lead his people down in the middle of all that to feed and give them the gospel. See, it's easier to go home and feel good about yourself because you gave $5 to give somebody hungry food as long as you don't have to take it down and be part of it with them. That's what it is. I mean, may I be honest this morning? You know, I'm always an honest guy, but let me just read through the line for you. I'm a great translator. You know why those kind of churches don't ever go down and invest in those kind of people? Because they don't have any money to give them. That's why. If you were a millionaire, they'd be there on your doorstep. If you were a bank president or you were this or you had a big, large corporation, you'd be a deacon so fast you wouldn't know what hits you. But to them, no bucks, no buck Rogers, man. And you don't have anything to give, we don't have any time to give you. That's a tragic thing to say, but it's true. So one pastor stated we need to build bigger buildings so we can get more people, so we can raise more money. Now, do you want to be happy? Then show mercy unto the poor. Listen, I know this will be a shock to your spiritual system. But the, based on the Bible and the New Testament Gospels, if Christ were alive today on earth, you know where he'd be spending his time, right down at 13th and Cherry, down at Restart, down at the library, and going out with Will, and down along the river with Darren. The Lord would be very uncomfortable and feel very out of place in 98% of the huge mega churches today. A couple of reasons. First of all, he'd have the wrong Bible. It'd be hard for him to follow along. Second of all, he'd hate the music. And thirdly, he'd be brokenhearted at the way his people look at the poor. And while all the congregations with their multimedia presentation, the praise band, the praise singers, sound systems, sound boards, light shows, smoke shows, interpreting dancing, wine and cheese tasting parties, go on and deceive themselves into thinking that's real Christianity, he would simply slip out the door unnoticed and make his way down to those who had nothing. And nobody would even notice that he was gone. He'd simply fulfill the great truth taught in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Oh, what a great one. It says, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, it's okay to get everything you get here. And this is why we don't have a Sunday night service. Two nights in a month I want you to spend with your families. The other two, we're out doing, taking what we learn here and taking it out to the people. That's what we're supposed to do. It's all right to eat the fat and drink the sweet, but most of God's people never get anything to anybody else. I want to tell you something. It says, 
For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You'll never be sorry when you send portions of what you have to those whom nothing is prepared. Taking care of the poor. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the